This is where we hold them. This is where we fight. This is where they die. And the shield boys. Remember this day, man. For it will be yours for all time. is going on yes sir what's up my boy coop in the house for another episode of heroes without capes podcast how'd your week go man man it was uh busy but um yeah we got through it it uh yeah just typical alaska stuff snow rain no no snow sun Darkness, light, <laughs> uh, all the all the things that make uh, Alaska unique. But I'm sure you had a lot of fun with the uh, um, what was it? The uh, you get your your snow, then you get the windstorm. Now you got that melt, so now you got that ice, and then that snow dumps on top of that ice, and that always makes driving super fun. Yeah, but um, my most dangerous situation was taking the dogs out. <laughs> My little Boston, see, they pulled me down the driveway, and um, I hit a patch of ice, and they oh, they, they no. drug me down the driveway. <laughs> These little twenty pound dogs, they put in that work. Hey, but I fell like yeah. a champ. You know, I did the roll, I tucked and rolled. I don't yeah. want to put my arms out because that's how you break stuff, right? Yeah. So I did a little shoulder roll and I, I slid like 10 feet all caught on my cameras at my house. Let me tell so you something, man. It's good. That's good. Ice in Alaska is undefeated. If if it had UFC rankings, it would be number one in every weight division. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. The amount of knockouts that ice has. And you, do all the, you do all this stuff to defeat it, right? Right. Where you're... Hey. You wear your, your shoes with the good soles. You put on your ice cleats. You put down gravel. You put down, you know, salt. Um, and it still just causes havoc, and there's nothing you can really do about it. No, when it decides to win, it's winning. That's, and that's a wrap. That's oh, true. my Lord. Yeah, the. Uh, <laughs> I remember, uh, uh, I think it was around this time last year, the kids had come by. And they saw me walk behind the truck, and then they didn't see me. Mm-hmm. And I said, yo, <laughs> look, because I ate it. But what was worse is that when they looked at the tail bed, they could see where my fingers were grasping for life, and they could see the <laughs> the claw prints of me just trying to not eat it. Yep. My grandson was right there. His first impression of his grandpa was that his grandpa got defeated by ice, caught mm-hmm. in hell. I caught an L right in front of my, my grandson. Hey, lesson learned. Uh, you got to walk like a cat. You, you can't walk like a, a human or do anything athletic or explosive on ice. Oh, so. my God. And then, uh, and then of course, there's the... Uh, uh, when you do have ice cleats, we're going to another story. Uh, great on ice, but when you transition to another surface, it's like... It's like it's it's coming to get you even inside of a house. Mm-hmm. It's like being back on ice. It's like being back on ice. I remember uh, uh, I was out in a village one time, and uh, I was fighting with some dude. 
and sure enough, man, ate it while I was trying to take the dude down, and I'm on my back going, how did this happen? And then I, your brain, just for that split second, is like, oh, you were in them cleats on the linoleum. That's what yep. happens. But uh, today's show is, uh, we're going to be talking about first responding with hands tied behind your back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And not literally, but, you know, uh, metaphorically here, uh, we find that... Uh, I'm seeing from being a former recruiter and talking to people and people that I, I had interested in in the biz at the time, they don't want anything to do with this joint right now. And uh, I am really worried, legitimately worried about the safety of my friends and family that are not just in the law enforcement profession, but in damn near every profession out there that provides service for people. Mm-hmm. Hell, I, I have to be concerned about my employees at my bookshop, that there could be... Uh, the way legislation and everything is working, it's... Uh, the balance is teetered to the wrong side right now. Yeah, and that's... Uh, you know, we look at a lot of the events that have happened since... Uh, hell, you can go all the way back to the Watts riots to uh, mm-hmm. the L.A. riots with uh, Rodney King to some of the more recent events. You know, we had Mike Brown in 2014. We had some other Freddie Gray um, incidents with law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously in 2020, we had uh, George Floyd. Right. And then uh, we had, I think, Dante Wright. They're also kind of in that Minnesota region. But So we have all these these um, incidents, and I say we have all of these incidents, those are the very few incidents that have been out there, but um, they've been changing the landscape of law enforcement. In particular, um, you have legislatures and even police administrators that then they look at that and they're like, oh my God, are we, well, we got to do some change like right now, but Mm, the some of this change that they're they're proposing is having unattended consequences, and it's being done at such a knee jerk level that they aren't really looking at the problem from a holistic approach, but rather a you know can we save some face right now? Can I save my job? Can I can I get some votes? Can I? Um, you know, things of that nature as opposed to actually sitting down with some of these folks who are involved with what's going on and coming up with meaningful change as opposed to, you know, tying the hands of law enforcement and making the communities less safe than what they really, really are. Well, I know that uh, uh, I just watched last night, as recently as last night, uh, it showed up in my feed, which is interesting because I've left the law enforcement realm. And I do comic books, man. I, I try to help people escape reality. And I think it's a therapeutic thing. And then the collector's market and stuff. But I still have that link to law enforcement. And I still have that link to first responding. And this video comes up in my feed. And it's uh, uh, the Florida uh, Police Department. The sergeant is escalating this encounter. Yep. So, female officer, and it could have been a male or a female officer, it doesn't matter, subordinate officer, uh, 
notices that this individual is having uh, some kind of crisis, psychological crisis, where he's he's amped up and he's escalating a situation with a, a prisoner that's already in custody. So she does the appropriate thing and pulls him away from the situation, and he responds by grabbing her by the throat momentarily because he was in full code red. Like he, I think when I watch the video, you can see where all of a sudden reality kicks, and he's like, oh, I just grabbed the friendly, and then he walks away, steamed off. I don't think he was mad at her. I think he was mad at himself. At right. least I hope so. But depending on who's looking at that whole scenario... You're going to have that one knee-jerk group that's like, I told you, even at the leadership, senior levels, police brutality, and then no one's going to be looking at, well, and then you have the far right side that's going to be looking at the situation going, she's a traitor to the profession, she shouldn't have gotten involved, she shouldn't have humiliated the sergeant like that, but then you have, I believe, that middle ground, the level-headed people that we want to have a bigger voice in all of this that are looking at saying shame on him but she did exactly what she was supposed to do and what the chief of police wanted her to do and what the community wanted her to do which was to if she or any officer in that department noticed another officer doing something that was escalating a situation they were to immediately take action in de-escalating which avoids a Floyd situation so she did textbook what she was supposed to do. I wonder how people are viewing that situation, if they're viewing it the same way we are, or if, uh, unfortunately, there, uh, uh, there's some bias from one extreme to the other. Right. So I, I saw that video this morning. Um, it was sent to me by someone else, and I took a look at that, and I was like, okay. Uh, first and foremost, um, obviously a very heated situation. You have a... A suspect who's been assaulting citizens and um, mm-hmm. you know, combative with the police and all of that stuff. But you get this guy in the vehicle, and um, at that point, you know he's he's handcuffed. He's in the vehicle. Is he still being you know an ass? Sure. But does that mean that you, on you know, on the professional side of the house, you being the police officer, you continue to? Um, exert your dominance, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, try to. Uh, that's your ego that's starting to kick in there. Of hey, you're talking back to the police, and I'm the police, and you can't yeah. talk back to the police. So he pulls out his pepper spray, and he's in this dude's face, and all this nonsense. And the officer, I mean, believe it or not, this is um, a requirement. Officers are required to intervene um, any time excessive force is being used or essentially is about to be used. That's a, re- it's a requirement. Um, there's many cases that discuss this and the, the female officer went up to her sergeant, grabbed him by the back of the duty, his belt. duty belt and just pulled him a bit, you know, two or three feet kind of, you know, pulled him back. So from there, he turns around and uh he put his hands on her on her neck, and I. Officer is in the right, right? There's no there's no doubt about that. The sergeant who was supposed to be leading this charge is clearly emotional. He's right. a clearly emotional dude. Um, he's involved in this incident, and whether he's 
emotional because his officers were put in a, a situation that uh, he didn't find good or whether he was emotional because he allowed his personal feelings to get involved. Either way, he has to remember that he represents not only his city, his police department, uh, all of those officers that were there with him. He represents you and me here, you know, right. thousands and thousands of miles away who were not choke slamming our subordinates <laughs> who are not, um, you know, egging on these these people to do uh, things that may allow us to use pepper spray, you know, egging him on so they can then justify using this force, right? And so ultimately the, the sergeant, he's been suspended without pay. Um, I can't imagine a situation where he... He stays there. No, I think Chief Rosa, I believe that's his name, uh, was very clear on that. I mean, he sent it to Internal Affairs and everything else. I don't think uh, uh, what we would normally see is the good old boys club kick in. Uh, what we presume is the good old boys club, because that doesn't exist everywhere, but it, it does have an ugly following in some places. But with that being said, uh, I mean, now it could be that this guy's got some serious PTSD or psychological mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. that haven't been dealt with and maybe that's what's going to end up happening, right? Uh, we're not here to decide whether the guy gets... And This is not a politically correct show, but I think it's it's right that we we show some grace to our fellow first responders because not everyone can do this profession, right? Mm-hmm. It's very easy for us to Monday morning quarterback. Uh, I would say first off that... Uh, 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 the training prevailed in that situation. That's where, when I hear DS, uh, defund the police, it raises my blood pressure. Trust me, I was, I was actually the, uh, uh, as you know, I was the chairman of the Alaska Police Standards Council. I got to see all this misconduct get brought in front of me as the chairman and vice chairman. And I know that there's bad cops out there, but it's only this tiny percentage. The one thing you should never do is do anything that is going to prevent funding for training of these departments to make them better. Training in that situation shine through. She was she didn't just do it because it was the because someone told her to. Right. She was convinced that it was the right thing to do, and she her training dictated to do that. And I bring that up because. For years, they've been teaching about that syndrome, contempt of cop. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that they really focused in on it until after all this really bad stuff. Right. Uh, you're probably the best use of force expert I know. Uh, and I know that you've gone through a lot of training. Uh, you've taught a lot in our academy. Um, can you talk a little bit about that contempt of cop syndrome? And I hope I didn't like snipe you with that one. No, we're we're, we're good. We're good. Okay. So, yeah, as I talked about just briefly earlier, you know, the contempt of cop syndrome is where essentially you, as the police officer, um, you know, if someone doesn't do exactly what you say, um, whether they are you're given a lawful order or not. You any disobedience to that order, essentially you you take that personal. And, right, uh, that's an issue. 
that's a huge issue, right? That's an ego issue. That's a training issue. That's a, you've been allowed to do it many times without being held accountable issue. And so that tends to lead to bigger issues, right? That leads to potentially excessive use of force issues. That leads to uh, you holding people in a punitive manner as opposed to holding them in a fair manner, in a legal manner. Um, You essentially are becoming the, as people say, the judge and jury. Yeah, you're being judged dread out on the street. So right there, which obviously is not the case, the reality is, listen, no one cares that you're a police officer. And what I mean by that is this. People, they care about how they're going to be treated by the person in the uniform. Right. Right? So I've had people who we've known to be hostile or known to be uh, a-holes to the police and be completely respectful, nice, and then you look at that that contact and you're like, how the hell was this dude so nice to me um, as opposed to always being an asshole with the other people that they're dealing with. And right. the reality is, again, they don't care that you're, you're the police. They care of how you're going to treat them while you're wearing that police uniform. Right. And that's the, the thing that a lot of folks got to put together is people need to be treated with respect. Right. Even when they're doing or their behavior does not necessarily garner respect, right? No one respects the dude who's, you know, committed these heinous crimes in the sense of, um, you know, victimizing people, kids, etc. But from the police standpoint, you still have to go out and show them respect, deal with them in an appropriate and fair manner because the police's job is essentially to do the enforcement, right? Right. It is the judicial who handles the punishment, the the court proceedings, all of that stuff. They handle that. We don't need to be doing both. We don't need to be doing, uh, you know, the third, what are they called, you know, judge, jury, executioner. Right. We don't need, need to be doing any of that this stuff. That's where we need to do the spiel from Law and Order. Right. The intro spiel. Right. <laughs> so... Again, a lot of that boils back down to ego. And listen, I, I won't sit here and say that I've, I don't have an ego. But with that being said, um, I've made an effort to make sure that I treat people fairly. Um, right. And there's a time that uh, you have to be a little bit more assertive. Harsh, yeah. assertive. Um, but that doesn't mean after all of that's taken place that you don't dust them off and, uh, hey, now that we've done that, let's get you taken care of. Let's get you uh, to where you need to go. And I uh, think that that is, a, that, that is a prime point. I remember my entire law enforcement career, 26 years of always remembering that. What, that was that one lesson I remembered, which was even if things get rough with an individual, you want to end that transaction as, as close as possible to returning their dignity back to them. Mm-hmm. At all costs, with the exception of safety, you want to be in a situation where you can return that dignity back to that paper, to that person, right? Now, excuse me. Sometimes they 
because of their actions, they rob you from that opportunity. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, but that's them doing it. That's right. not you. I think where uh, a lot of these officers uh, that get themselves hemmed up is they forget that uh, when they wear the uniform, like you you stated, they're representing the government. They're representing uh, the law enforcement branch of a local government or state government or federal government. They are no longer an individual. And I think that's why we're seeing what's happening in these major cities where these guys are just taking this verbal beating. Um, now, granted, we're going to go back to the theme of this whole show, but mm-hmm. a lot of these guys, uh, when they finally do get hemmed up, is because they started taking it personal. Yep. And uh, they have to understand that when they remove that uniform, uh, people will look at them from a different with a different uh, lens, so to speak. Unless you uh, are embedded in the community, like uh, rural law enforcement, I remember uh, being assigned to a rural village. Mm-hmm. It's like you're never off. They see you, like you have a, it's very stressful because you have to carry yourself 24 uh, 7. You're the, the police and you're always 24 7. No matter what. And, and mm-hmm. I, think, I think people, uh, you know, as we, circle back to the main theme I think a lot of people forget the stress of professional first responders whether you're a firefighter paramedic doctor nurse or cop or even soldier marine sailor airman unfortunately for all of us that chose that profession you're never off duty. Mm-hmm. If you commit a crime that normally would be given some leniency to any other profession, you you are going to be judged as someone that presumably knew better, mm-hmm. and you're always held to a higher standard, even when it might not feel fair or appropriate. The Walmart greeter, God bless you, if they jaywalk, that's not making front page. When the Walmart greeter gets a DUI, that's not making front page on the newspaper. Unless they injure someone, the DUI doesn't make front page. There has to be an accident or there has to be a collision or something, right? Let a cop or nurse or a doctor or a firefighter get a DUI. That's front page news. Yep. That's front page news. Because society, when you took on that responsibility, expects you to work at a higher level. So, to the lawmakers that are listening to this at one point or another, or your aides or staffers that are listening to this podcast or watching this on YouTube at one point, mm-hmm. before you start pounding your chest and hitting the pavement with defund A, B, and C, think about what you really are asking for. Maybe take a look at San Francisco right now. It's what's going on there with the mayor. I'm not going to sit here and slam her right now because you start kicking a a dead dog. It's just just not worth it. And it Mm -hmm. makes you, Mm -hmm. I I think we're supposed to respect each other as human beings, Mm -hmm. right? But she is... 
uh, feeling the repercussions of those decisions. I mean, you've got all these businesses, major businesses like Walgreens that are just shutting their businesses down because they're like, hey, we get your agenda and all this nonsense, but it is truly affecting us where you've now decriminalized things because you don't want uh, uh, the chance of this 1% this one percent chance of a negative enforcement action right. of, of a of some type of a, a incident with law enforcement and this individual. Why don't we spend the money on training the New York City Police Department, who I have a heart for because family lineage. Mm-hmm. My stepfather was a, a NYPD officer. He served at the Forty Third and the Hundred Second Precinct. Uh, the friends that I've made. Since then, from that police department, currently, they don't have the funding, from what I understand, to even do a field training program. Did you know that to this date, 2022, they still don't have a field training and evaluation program for their officers? They put them out on a uh, uh, the old school 1960s, 1970s mentor program where they just put them out with a senior officer an officer that's been on the beat for a while. But that officer could be, unless, it could be all ate up mm-hmm. and is now teaching mm-hmm. this office, this new officer bad habits and there's no checklist that they're going off of to evaluate. Mm-hmm. Nothing. I get it. Your police department is over, I think there are over 35,000 officers. They used to be like 40-something thousand. Yep. But uh, the largest police department in the United States I mean, like, they rival uh, some military, mm-hmm. some foreign military, mm-hmm. how large they are. The amount of budget that they would need to train their officers in appropriate use of force, for instance, the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and the other specialized defensive tactics that they train at, let's say, the Department of Public Safety Academy in Sitka, mm-hmm is only available to specialized units in the NYPD. They don't teach that at the academy, at the NYPD academy. We got to visit the NYPD academy. It's not that they don't want to. They don't have the budget to do it. Another crazy thing, when we spoke to their academy, the uh, uh, emergency uh, vehicle operation uh, operators course for the NYPD, they have one of the best tracks for teaching. They spend the majority of their time teaching guys how to parallel park and basic driving, driving in reverse, that sort of stuff, because a big bulk of the applicant pool, because when you're trying to recruit for 30 plus thousand officers, your academy, I think their academy size is like a thousand thousand cadets, Mm -hmm. the applicant pool consists of a lot of people that they went and took the driver's test so that they can get that check mark that they have a driver's license, but they've never driven before in their life other than right. they get that, that check mark. Yep. They may be great human beings, great specimen of an athlete otherwise, but can't drive to save their lives. And now the academy is focused on just mm-hmm. basic driving skills mm-hmm. that these guys should already be coming to the academy with. How do you fix that? How do you fix the range? How do you fix training for these guys? 
you have to provide them a budget that's appropriate for a department of their size. The NYPD can't afford a deduction of millions of dollars because of some political agenda. And some, uh, if you look at use of force, the best thing that happened was this situation with this sergeant and this officer that happened in Florida. Every lawmaker should be looking at the scenario and seeing, oh, you mean when we fund the department and we fund appropriate training, people take the appropriate action out in the field. Right. Wow. Duty to intervene. Right there. We saw it. But she was trained that. Yep. And, she, and, so, and we saw that. So, when we get, again, we talk about how the hands are tied in, in law enforcement. We look at just some of this legislation that's going down in our state below us in Washington state, they enacted a lot of crazy legislation that has tied the hands of law enforcement. And it's really, it's given the ace to the the criminal element to essentially do what they do with limited um, accountability. Here in the state of Alaska right now, there is a bill that is being pressed forward. And uh, the bill uh, talks about uh, really three things. So talks about uh, banning chokeholds. And the second part of that is it talks about uh, the requirement to de-escalate. And then the third thing that they really tackle is the um, you're required to give a warning prior to using deadly force. So you look at that bill, and if you're a layperson, you're like, okay, well, all of that seems good. Um, and because we've been inundated with all this media over the last two years about how crazy the police are and they do all this stuff, yep, that's mm-hmm. good to go. We we support it. But let's back up a little bit. Let's back up just a touch. So let's look at the, the chokeholds, right? Well, they should outlaw the chokeholds. It should be the carotid restraint. Right. <laughs> That is appropriate. But we don't do chokeholds. Exactly. So the first thing you look at is, I don't know a police department in the United States that teaches chokeholds. No. I just have I just have yet to come across it. I've traveled all, all up and down the West Coast. I've been all over to different uh, police agencies. Um, I work with a lot of folks that work in police departments all over the country, and I don't know a single one that does chokeholds. And so when you talk about banning chokeholds, that tells me that the legislature or the lawmaker or the representative in this case, they don't have a clue. Well, you mean like assault rifles too. Right, right. So (laughs) they don't have a clue what they're talking about and they're doing feel-good legislation. Yeah, they're doing what 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 this two percent. <coughs> we were talking about this earlier. It, uh, that it's literally we are allowing this two to ten percent of the population to dictate the entire narrative for the mm-hmm. entire nation right now. Mm-hmm. It's this small percentage. Because if you talked, if you spoke to the majority of the people in your circle, both air quotes liberal right wing those moderates i think they'd all agree on certain things right right that hey um if 
you can use the carotid restraint instead of putting bullets in someone, I think that that would be a much better situation. I think I'd be okay with that. 100%. And so, yeah, the chokehold that they may be referencing, which we don't know because they just say chokeholds, is the LVNR, so lateral vascular neck restraint, right? Mm -hmm. If you look at that in a sport sense, since a lot of more people are familiar with the sport, it's a it's a rear naked choke. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a essentially it's a it's a blood choke. So it chops off. And when I say chops off, that's that's not a good. That's oh, not a good no. word. Hey, they're gonna. Oh, <laughs> they're, they're gonna ban that for sure. Now that I say that, it chops off. It restricts the flow um, of blood for a, a moment, which may cause you to lose consciousness. Now, you've probably have seen this. Um, if you follow mixed martial arts, mm-hmm. how many people get put in LVNRs? Like every single UFC event or Bellator event, at least one person. So, at least one. And then this is on every ESPN. Every so evening. this is all over the nation as far as people getting, quote unquote, yeah. choked out or an LVNR uh, put on them. Well, but, I see where you're going here. Have you ever seen anyone really hurt from it and will this legislate legislation also outlaw ufc and bellator now hey as long as you have a mouse mouthpiece in and gloves on it's all it's all good you to gotta go. issue it to them before right right so <laughs> look at that legislation Jesus. you're like okay um this tells me a few things uh, the person who's enacting this law or putting this this law this bill forward a they're not educated in the uses of their cheaper staff, hey, their staffers have done no research. Nor have they ever been in that house alone fighting a person uh, in a fight for their life and, you know, have to make some decisions. Because here's the problem you put this stuff into law and you accidentally, or let's say, hell, you even intentionally. Use this type of force. You use an LVNR to take someone into custody. And let's just say, hey, they were knocked unconscious for two or three seconds. They were handcuffed. They came right back to, and everything's good to go. Took them to McDonald's, bought them a cheeseburger yeah, on the way yeah. to jail. Minimal Whatever. injury to the <laughs> minimal injury, right? Right. Does that mean the officer is now going to be held criminally liable? Yeah. Right now, is, is that, that what that means? It, it should not, but that's what this legisla- legislation, if it goes right. through. Right. So then we move on to the second portion of that, and it's the requirement to de-escalate. And I can tell you, again, that's just bananas, because that leads me to believe that some lawmakers out there believe that the police just roll into these situations, and there is zero type mm-hmm. of de-escalation when in 99.999% of the situations that require de-escalation, we de-escalate. Hell, we de-escalate the situations that aren't necessarily uh, requiring de-escalation. And right. How many times we've talked to the, uh, the the divorced couple who's called up and said, hey, my, my baby daddy has missed the uh, drop-off time. And it's five minutes past, and I want to make a police report. You don't think that we're de-escalating that and saying, hey, just slow your roll for just a minute. So if we're de-escalating those type of situations, 
We're de-escalating all these high events. We're already de-escalating. 100%. Every so often, people rob us from that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And there's going to be... You can't do a a catch-all. Right. You can't do a catch-all. It just doesn't work. So this local legislator who gets this approved in their jurisdiction, it's still going to have to... Pat- what will end up happening is an officer will end up getting charged. Right. If they have a good attorney... They will then take it to the Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court will have to look at the full picture, right? Mm-hmm. But why even go to that point if we can just educate these guys now and let them know? Look, for instance, for our Alaska audience, with uh, village public safety officers, VPOs, Alaska State Troopers, North Slope Borough, uh, I can go on and on about departments that notoriously respond with one officer or one trooper because Mm -hmm. they simply don't have the manpower to respond with multiple officers. It's impossible. We would have to quadruple our numbers statewide in every department to be able to do the standard. For you to actually safely implement some of these laws... You have to have multiple officers. You have to have the deadly uh, deadly force oversight officer that while I am trying to de-escalate and tell the person all the happy things they need to hear mm-hmm. so that they don't shoot me, I have to have another officer prepared to take the shot just in case none of that stuff works, which has happened, which has happened. If someone's coming at you barreling down with a vehicle trying to kill you, you can yell all you want. Hey, stop. Uh, I'm I'm trying to de-escalate you running me over right now. Please. They, it is completely unrealistic. Right, right. There's no time. You know, the 21-foot rule, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. the rule for uh, uh, dealing with someone with an edge weapon. And now, correct me if I'm wrong, they've, they've actually concluded that you need way more than 21 feet. Yeah, right? absolutely. So... Are these guys at least someone educating them on the twenty-one foot rule? Twenty-one foot rule. There's no, there's no de-escalations. Charging someone's charging at you with with a knife. Mm-hmm. You need a minimum of twenty-one feet to be able to side shuffle, draw your weapon, or just get out of the way in general and mm-hmm. try to, or try to draw a different tool. You don't have time to do this entire checklist all the time. Should we be training all departments on always trying to de-escalate? Of course. That's why we have crisis negotiators. That's why we have uh, uh, verbal judo and all these other things. That I would say 99% of officers out there don't wake up every morning hoping that they get into a shooting or hoping that they get into a deadly force situation. Right. I would say 99%. Yeah, Absolutely. That 1% of those insane people, we punish them for it when we, when it happens or mm-hmm. if we can catch on. And we try what we can to, to detect this stuff. I mean, we run them through a psychological. We run them through a polygraph. We run uh, an extensive background check on these people. Every so often, you just get these antisocial people that do sneak through the system. And I would say... 
part of the issue that's hurting us and that's creating this legislation, because I've seen it in departments up here, is a lot of times we do turn the blind eye to those types of officers. Unfortunately, we have done it. We've both seen it. Where we're like, why is this person still in uniform? This person should have been terminated years ago. And then until the bomb blows up, no one does anything about it. Right. And, and then, then all we can do is say, I told you so. When in fact, what leadership should have done was remove that cancer so that it doesn't affect all of us. Right. Because I remember uh, uh, a close friend of ours, uh, uh, well, hell, I could say his name because uh, we, we went down there together. It was Moose and I. Uh, we went down to NYPD. Uh, we went to their academy and we spoke there at their academy. And I remember specifically telling their academy class that just remember, guys, we're, we're family, we're your extended family. And when you do great things, we benefit from it. And when you do a bad thing, we all get punished for it. Yep. And it is so true. Absolutely. One guy and one cop in Alabama doing something atrocious based off of race, religion, or something else, or just excessive force in general, affects the entire national presence of law enforcement in the blink of an eye. You think, of, of an eye. you think of George Floyd, that incident. Right. Um, and again, that's that's not, uh, he's been found guilty, that officer, um, in court. Yeah. And so there, the argument here isn't really to discuss whether we think he should or shouldn't have been convicted. But let's just look at that singular event. That singular event. Um, not only sparked off this tinderbox around the the country, but it actually went overseas as well. Yeah, one incident that occurred in Minnesota went all over, right, and affected all of us. And again, we look at some of this legislation that's been a result of it. You know, we look at again these things we already discussed, and um, I want to get to that last part um, of this bill where it talks about the requirement to give a warning before using deadly force. Again, you look at that, and it's been a requirement for since the 80s. There's a landmark case in Tennessee uh, that discusses the requirement to give a verbal warning for using deadly force when feasible or reasonable, right? Right. So, obviously, in Tennessee v. Gardner, there was an issue down there where uh, the police go out. They're dealing with a burglary suspect. Turns out to be a 15-year-old male, black male. And the officers get there on scene. They're doing their thing at the house. The male runs from the, the house he hops a fence or is attempting to hop a fence, officer shoots him. So back then, there was that was legal to do in Tennessee because they had basically a, a law that said that you can use deadly force to effect an arrest for any felony crime when the subject is fleeing. It doesn't talk about whether that subject's armed. It doesn't talk about a warning. It doesn't talk about a lot of things. So part of what came out 
of that was not only did they, they strike down that law saying it's unconstitutional, they required that officers give a warning prior to using deadly force, which obviously makes sense. Right. Now, the warning doesn't have to be robotic. And, sir, we will use deadly force against you if you do not comply in five seconds. Mm-hmm. If you give the warning that, hey, you keep reaching for that gun and you're going to get shot, that's the warning, right? That's it. But this has been in law for a long time. So, again, you have this legislation that comes in, potentially tying the hands of law enforcement, because if it comes into law and at the state level, and you, for whatever reason, you couldn't get it out quick enough that you're going to shoot somebody or use deadly force against somebody because the situation didn't allow you to do so, are you now going to be held liable on the state side, are you then going to be, uh, you know, sued, taken financially, arrested, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera, when this is already in place, it's in policies around the country, it's in federal law. I mean, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You can go on and on and on about it, but you look at the legislation portion of some of the issues we talked about, and again, we have a bill to me that doesn't fix anything. As a matter of fact, there's some hindrance there, right? Because use of force incidents are tense, uncertain, rapidly evolving. And both of us have been in deadly force situations. Yes. And so what if, what if, now I've investigated deadly force situations. I had one situation, three officers involved. Three shooters. Mm -hmm. One of them gave command. The other two didn't. Does that mean that the other two get found because they didn't yell? The other thing would be, I've also investigated shootings where the only thing that was able to come out of the officer's mouth was stop. Or, oh, shit. Or, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. That's all that came out because it happened so fast. Right. Are we now going to charge that? Obviously, this won't be retroactive, but same scenario. We're now going right. to uh, charge these people with crimes? Exactly. That's insane. And it, does, it doesn't make sense. And um, this is just kind of where we're at with law enforcement. Again, we talk about Washington, and Washington State has enacted some crazy, crazy well, Here, I'll cue up this video laws. here real quick here. Let's see. Uh, we'll watch mm-hmm. a little bit of it. Mm-hmm. Let's hear what this officer has to say. Let's check it. All right. Hello, my name is Officer Gruber. I'm currently assigned to the patrol division here at the Auburn Police Department. I just want to provide a brief breakdown on how House Bill 1310 has been affecting the Auburn Police Department and our community, specifically relating to probable cause and pursuits. I'm going to focus on the recent carjacking that occurred on August 31st near the Auburn Police Lee Hill substation. As described in a previous post, a victim in the city of Auburn had her vehicle stolen at gunpoint. The vehicle is a 2016 Lexus RX. Using a photo montage, the victim was able to identify a single suspect. Based on the victim's identification, the officers developed probable cause to arrest the suspect for robbery first degree. Officers later learned the vehicle was equipped with LoJack, which was activated after the robbery. LoJack is a way officers can track a stolen vehicle. 
Although it does not provide a specific GPS point, it provides a general location of where the stolen vehicle is. On September 1st, the very next day, King County Guardian 1 located the vehicle in Auburn at around 3 p.m. Two subjects were seen exiting the Lexus before the Lexus drove away near the 900 block of 12th Street Southeast. The vehicle was observed trying to drive away from other officers throughout the city. At one point, the Lexus directly drove past a patrol vehicle. The vehicle later drove westbound on Highway 18 and out of Auburn. I see that some citizens have questions about the incident and why we did not pursue the vehicle. I'd like to explain why a pursuit was not initiated. Per House Bills 1054, law enforcement officers are only able to pursue vehicles for certain crimes. The following criteria must be met. The first question police have to ask is, do Auburn police officers have probable cause to believe that the vehicle occupant has committed a sex offense or violent offense? Violent offenses include crimes such as robbery first degree and robbery second degree. In addition to the probable cause, the following additional pursuit authorization requirements must be met. One, is the pursuit necessary to ID or apprehend the suspect? Two, does the suspect pose an imminent or immediate threat to the safety of others? And three, is the risk of failure to identify or apprehend greater than the safety risks of the pursuit itself? Officers also have to consider if there are alternatives to the pursuit. Other factors need to be considered, which include speed, weather conditions, traffic conditions, and roadway conditions. Is the area residential? Are there children walking around during school hours? This all has to be considered before the pursuit can be authorized. As mentioned before, Auburn police have established probable cause for robbery one on a specific suspect. When Guardian One originally located the vehicle in Auburn, roughly 24 hours had passed since the original carjacking. Stolen vehicles are often passed between suspects numerous times, and since a significant amount of time had passed since the robbery, we could not prove the suspect driving the stolen vehicle at the time was the same person who committed the robbery. When the Lexus drove past the patrol vehicle, which was seen by Guardian One, the sole occupant and driver was wearing a mask. The officer was unable to determine if the suspect driving the vehicle was the suspect who actually carjacked the vehicle near the Lee Hill substation. Although there is PC to arrest the suspect for the original carjacking for robbery first degree, officers were unable to determine at that time if the suspect of the carjacking was still driving the vehicle. Although it's reasonable to believe that the driver of the stolen Lexus was the suspect who committed the robbery, officers needed probable cause for robbery to pursue the vehicle and not reasonable suspicion alone. Under the new changes to the law, officers cannot pursue on the basis of just observing a stolen vehicle being driven. At the time the officers saw the vehicle, the probable cause to arrest the driver of the Lexus would only be for possession of a stolen vehicle, often referred to as PSV. PSV is a property crime and is classified as a Class B felony. As per state law and the Auburn PD policy, Auburn officers were unable to pursue the Lexus as possession of a stolen vehicle is not a violent offense or a Class A felony. We understand that this may be frustrating for you, but the Auburn Police Department is compelled to abide by the current Washington state law. Our officers followed the current law and Auburn police policy during this incident. Thank you. And that is the potential future of every jurisdiction in the United States if this type of legislation is approved in every state. Right. So you, you look at that and you're like, okay, um, laws are good for the overall operations of state government or just government in general. 
and make sure that they're essentially there's checks and balances and they're they're doing what they need to do and then there's obviously policy and procedure that falls within those state laws etc cetera, etc cetera. but when you have lawmakers who are creating these laws and that pursuit law is one of the many um, that were created in Washington state that has made some of those things um, crazy down there to say that it again it, it ties the hands of law enforcement and puts the ball back in the court of the, the offender the criminal when the reality is the general public expect for the police to go out and be the police that's correct hell the criminals expect the police to go out and be the police. How many people? How many times have you responded to a convicted felon who is now back in the community, is doing the right thing, and calls you up and is like, my house just got robbed? They have an expectation, even though one would presume that they have this link or this camaraderie with people that are committing similar crimes that he or she went to jail for. Right. They have an expectation that you're going to do your job. Exactly. And, you know, by and large, we go out and we do our job, but it doesn't help when we have laws that are enacted or um, administrators from the you know your agency administrators who essentially they uh, have to not say anything or disagree with the laws if they're asked because you know there are times when that stuff is they're asked their opinion on it or. Um, mm. But they have to worry about being fired if they they disagree, right? Or if they say anything against said law or policy, they have to worry about being fired because they're at will. And then it puts it down to the folks who are on the road who actually have to follow this policy. And then they're the ones whose hands are tied. I think... Uh, I mean, we'll have to talk about this in future episodes, but one of the things that... Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> is that what they're... I'm just pushing buttons. I apologize. <laughs> one of the things is... Uh, uh, <laughs> one of the things is... Squirrel. Uh, yeah, lawmakers, uh, for instance, uh, you have lawmakers that weren't educated on what we see on a daily basis, right? Mm-hmm. And then there is sometimes some nefarious stuff too, right? Mm-hmm. Like I remember there was a time where a lawmaker, a particular, actually it was two lawmakers in Juneau here, were attempting to push legislation that decriminalized uh, 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 sex with a minor. And you found out very clearly, the one thing I do love about Alaska is that everybody knows everybody. Right. And it was very clear that the person who was promoting this legislature, his son had just been, <laughs> he or she's son had just been uh, popped for right. sex with a minor. And all of a sudden, this can't be a crime. It's my yep. son. That's disgusting. Mm-hmm. That can be addressed. But there's other stuff where, it, it, my point in that in that example, aside from it being disgusting and just disturbing, is that no no amount of education was going to correct that person's mindset. That was just right. a selfish, 
I'm a legislature, a legislator, and I can try to do something to protect my own interests, right? We see it on the national mm-hmm. level right mm-hmm. now. But then you have the same lawmakers that may jump onto something like this because when it's presented to them by a non-law enforcement or non-first responder entity, it seems to make sense. And then they determine really quickly. And then they may not know until much later, oh, God, I've just created this Frankenstein monster. I have, uh, uh, I now have widespread crime uh, occurring in my community because right. of the legislation that uh, I got approved and right. decriminalizing things or tying the hands of first responders. Mm-hmm. Uh, for future episodes, obviously I want to uh, uh, talk in more detail about the benefits of appointed versus elected or permanent mm-hmm. leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, you kind of touched on it. The other problem is in this scenario is depending on who is bringing up said legislation. As an example, the leadership for the statewide agency in this in this in this state answers to, is an appointed person that answers directly to uh, the governor mm-hmm. and serves at the will of the governor. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't believe that this governor would ever. As a matter of fact, I've been watching the trends, and I can safely make these statements. I'm not employed by anyone. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. I can say what the hell I want. But I gotta be, I gotta be but careful. you have to be careful. So I, I'll be careful enough where I don't get you in trouble here. But mm-hmm. I, I don't believe that this governor, just watching his trends, would ever agree with any type of legislation like this. However, what if... We have another election cycle, or he just turns out after eight years. You know, mm-hmm. he gets reelected. You only have eight years of stability in these departments right mm-hmm. now. After the eight year, at a maximum, right? That's provided. That's assuming that the person wins two terms. Right. After that, they can get some nutcase that gets elected. You know, some psychopath that convinces the public at large that they have the best interest of the public at heart turns out that they're psychotic they end up in in this position of mass position of authority and starts terminating anyone that tries to bring common sense to the situation right uh to the point that even if they did attempt to educate them they would just be terminated for it just because it was not going along with their uh uh uh, um, agenda, which is why I've always believed that we have to start educating our community at the youngest age as possible. Yep. We we need to have explore programs. Absolutely. We need to have mentorship programs, big brother, big sister programs that are Law, responsible law enforcement member, members are encouraged to participate in. Here, we're seeing these national, at a national level, we're seeing these laws, this legislation getting promoted, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because of the mistakes of one person or two people, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at it statistically, it's a very small percentage that's right. causing this ripple effect. Right. Let's look at the Explorer program here in the state of Alaska. The only reason that we do not have a statewide or even in our largest city right now an Explorer program is because one or two officers 
long before you and I put the uniform on, had an inappropriate relationship with one of the explorers. Yep. And that ended one of the most effective programs otherwise. Right. For multiple generations that have missed out on that because uh, Mm -hmm. explorers are ages 13 and above, I believe, right? 13 to 21, Mm -hmm. I think, for explorers. Why on earth would you punish all of these generations of people that... and, And you're not just conditioning them to be cops. You're conditioning them to be good citizens, right? Right. Not all of them become law enforcement. Some of them become lawyers. Some of them become uh, public leaders, youth pastors, whatever. They they become, uh, they're more educated. They understand what first responders go through, and then they become a better citizen, right? And I don't say that in, uh, you know, some controversial uh, training people to love the government because I'm I'm totally against that too. But right. Just being a good neighbor. How about that? Mm-hmm. We're training them to be a good human being, mm-hmm. right? We're teaching them about service and sacrifice. Why on earth would you penalize a program like that for the mistakes of two idiots that we already punished? Knee-jerk we reaction. punished them. Knee-jerk reaction. And there's no reason for it. Just punish the, the one or two cancers, remove them, be transparent, and show what was done. I mean, even, you know, there's always been this argument, oh, well, the union is going to come in and defend that behavior and stuff. No. By and large, the union, especially up here, is made up of people that are like-minded, mm-hmm. that don't want that to represent them. You know and what I mean? Absolutely. They don't want that. And the union, by and large, <clears throat> is ensuring that the employer is following the proper discipline protocol. They're not coming in and saying, hey, this uh, criminal activity is going to go. We're good with this criminal activity, and oh, by the way, there's nothing you can do because he's a union employee. That's not what, no. what happens. No. And I think you you know, and we've seen it, if you commit crimes while being a police officer associated with the police, um, they hammer the hell out of you. Yeah. The consequences of committing a crime while being a law enforcement officer are way, way more significant than if you're a lay person. And, and you know what? They should be. Um, but by and large, people think that, hey, there's this, there's this code of silence and this, this thin blue line. And listen, when it comes to crimes, I don't want the dude next to me being a bank robber on his days off. Right. That shit's not going to fly, right? Exactly. I don't want him... Um, going out and talking to 13-year-old chicks or whatever the case may be, uh, we don't know. That's that's a no-go. And so everyone from top to bottom should be screaming um, from the mountains to say, hey, get the hell out of our profession. That's get right. the hell out of our agency. Um, also, if you want to get the hell out of the state of Alaska while you're at it, uh, you can go down to Washington because it's you know, uh, safe haven. You know, the, <laughs> you know, the problem... Uh, goes back to funding and training and leadership many, many times, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, someone in leadership or someone in, in management that is not a leader but a manager, because mm-hmm. leaders act and lead by example. Managers just manage, and they tend to become the problem a lot of times. 
they see some of these indicators and they do nothing about it. And I think that's where the public outrage is. And maybe we need to come up with legislation that addresses that. How about let's address that? Right. Uh, don't tie the hands of the first responders. Let's hold the, the leadership, the training academies. Let's hold all these people accountable and let's let's bring them in front. Let's bring them on the carpet and let's see what it is that we need to fix. As an example, we talk about bad cops. I have this uh, uh, unique experience in my career where I actually supervised the judicial services. So we used to see the inmates a lot. Mm -hmm. And I got to speak with a a couple of guys recently that I supervised that are awesome guys, man. The court service officer profession, it's a... They're unsung heroes. Absolutely. They they do stuff that we do not want to do. Absolutely. And they deal with people we absolutely don't want to be around. Also true. 24-7. And with that being said, uh, they were talking about when they have witnessed some of these former cops that should have never been cops in the first place. And that's something we can address in in another podcast. They noticed that several of these guys, when they went into the system— what we call the system into incarceration, they immediately, what the term is called, inmate it up. They, in my humble opinion, they weren't, they weren't chameleons that are just trying to survive in jail. They literally revealed what was inside of them the whole time, which was that criminal in nature. Can you imagine somebody that was a cop goes into jail? The expectation is that they're going to have to be in solitary. They're going to, they can't be around inmates because the inmates are going to know that that's a cop that put them in jail and they're going to go after them. Instead, these particular cops, when they went into the inmate population, the inmates, and I don't want to dog all inmates, but hey, man, you know, it is what it is. They immediately recognize that behavior, that antisocial behavior and said, he's one of us. Yep. He is one of us. And they welcomed them with open arms, and that individual was allowed to jump right into main main population without any isolation whatsoever because at the core they were always a criminal. Mm-hmm. We did our job, though. We held the person accountable. We got rid of them. Perhaps, once again, where legislation and funding needs to go is to strengthen our ability to prevent those people from ever wearing the uniform in the first place so that they're not harming the vast majority of professionals that chose to do this duty for public because of their love for people. And I think the other thing that we need to do is to reinforce with first responders that you have to have a legitimate a legitimate care and love for human beings to do this profession successfully. You cannot do this just for the check because you will become one of the bad ones real quick. And a bad cop just doesn't commit crimes. A bad cop is lazy and doesn't do anything to prevent crimes. And this legislation will slowly turn every cop into a lazy cop. Yeah. Again, those are the unattended consequences that uh, these feel-good bills are creating. You know, you look at that video with the Washington State officer and unintended consequences. He looks frustrated, too. Yeah, unintended consequences. Uh, Drug crimes down there are essentially off the table. Um, 
pursuits, just the way they handle business that are essentially ways that businesses handle all around the nation are off the table because of feel-good legislation. Mm-hmm. And again, you have to bring in your stakeholders. You have to look at how these decisions, especially when it comes to public policy, are going to affect the overall end product. But um, again, what you can't do is essentially put these bills forward and um, do it in a manner that's going to essentially or potentially garner votes for you. That's not how we uh, enact public policy from a public administration standpoint. You have to have some research behind it. You have to bring in some uh, folks who are subject matter experts in this stuff. And you know what? Reform, uh, we throw that word out there, law enforcement reform, reform, reform. Some of us call it evolution, evolution, evolution. Mm. And people have been evolving for ever since people, right? Right. Law enforcement evolves. And law enforcement will continue to evolve. Whether we evolve the correct way, uh, we have a lot of time ahead of us to see exactly how law enforcement evolves, but that also takes the evolution um, into the hands of other entities that are involved, right? It takes evolution of community. It takes evolution of uh, government outside of the executive branch, which law enforcement falls under. It takes evolution of the judicial. It takes evolution of the legislative branch. Um, and if you guys remember, those are three branches of government, right? <laughs> you better for remember anyone, those. For anyone who doesn't remember that, those are your three major branches. You know, we look at uh, the Auburn-Washington video that you shared with me, and I'm glad you did. And shout out to Dan Brown. I'm going to give him a shout out for that. He sent that to me. Well, Dan, uh, right on for sharing this, because what would you do if you're sitting on your on your porch and watching your neighbor's vehicle that was just stolen drive by several police officers and the police officers do nothing not because they don't want to because they can't I'll tell you what I do as a neighbor I I cuss at the police right it's the police's fault because law enforcement continually and likely will always be the most visible form of government Mm. Even though the police are not the ones who are enacting legislation, they are the ones who have to go out and enforce this, right? Right. So you have these legislatures who put these bills forward, and then it's the police who are left the you know, flaming bag of, of poop. And yeah. then the, exactly the neighbor looks at the police, and it's, it's the police's fault. Right. They're not going to their legislature and, because the legislature is not the one on the corner who has to go out and respond to this. They're not the ones who assume the risk and the liability. It's the police who are out there who are there. And then again, neighbor sees it, they see the police, and all of a sudden that person's turned off to the police. They don't want to call the police. They're like, hey, you didn't do anything last time I called you, um, and so I'm done with you, I'm dismissing you, and oh, by the way, you guys suck. Yeah. And uh, I have no problem with defunding you now because you guys don't do your job anyway. Who? Who, me? No. The, the police. What they're saying. Yeah. What they'd be saying. Yeah, you see yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're saying. That's what they'd be saying. I thought but, you weren't going to pay me. No, 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 no. You're not getting paid. I'm you're not, not getting paid. Okay, I'm not getting paid. Just checking. 
<laughs> no, that's exactly it. No, but that's what yep. ends up happening. And then it, it's funny that you you nailed it. That was very well said because that's exactly what happens. They, they end up catching the flack for bad decision making, for bad, bad, for bad, bad policy. policy. Bad policy. Yeah, and you're just like, damn. It, it's not their job to create policies. It's their job to enforce policy. Correct. Uh, good or bad, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I, I think you're starting to see, uh, you'll start to see an exodus from these agencies. I think you're starting to see it already. I already seen it. Yeah. There's a mass exodus happening. Uh, people no longer want to be involved in a profession where there's no way they're going to make it home. Right. And uh, uh, that leads uh, to future episodes because I, I, I do want to talk about in the future about faith-based law enforcement and, you know, the re- what what is our reason to come home mm-hmm. every night type stuff because you've got to have that mindset. Absolutely. Whether you're a firefighter or something else and, you know, uh, uh, recognizing heroes as well. Uh, with that being said, uh, I did want to take this moment to recognize uh, one of our local heroes, which is... Uh, uh, Austin from Austin's uh, Compassionate Exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a kid, uh, 13 years old, paralyzed from the neck down. He was paralyzed uh, when he was, I believe, six years old. Uh, some idiot was drifting, speeding, and collided into the vehicle he was in over by church, I think it was, mm-hmm. and uh, he ends up uh, crippled. And yet, this kid. He started this Austin's Compassionate Exchange, which is a nonprofit where he collects uh, uh, funding for medical equipment, advanced medical equipment that your insurance doesn't cover, and they will loan it out to you so that you can have that stuff. You know, you have that that parent uh, with COVID that needs uh, a special type of device to grant them comfort that the insurance company won't pay for because it's a comfort thing and not a uh, right. what they deem to be uh, medically necessary, they provide that stuff. And this is a kid uh, who <coughs> is not promised tomorrow, so he lives every day to the fullest. Now. Right. And so I just want to recognize him. I think a lot of us can emulate someone like that. And if you guys have a, a, an example of a hero in the community that you'd like us, like us to give a shout-out to, we absolutely will do that. Also wanted to give a shout out to uh, Dave Eller, who is uh, a sponsor of Aegis Comics of Alaska, uh, uh, with his uh, uh, his uh, investment brokerage there, uh, and uh, in Wasilla. So, right. the link to his uh, uh, to his website is in the description. And with that, do you have any parting uh, parting words of wisdom, man? Um, <laughs> what did I say last week? Grab the week by the nuts and, and go. It's it's yeah. it's go time. Yeah. No, that's it. Um, you know, we talk about Austin here. Um, I've never met Austin. However, I want to say two summers ago, I almost ran into a flock of mini ponies. Yeah. <laughs> the, I almost ran into a flock of mini ponies on the highway, and I'm no joke. It's four a.m. I'm tired as hell. I'm driving to my office to knock out a couple things um, because the shift ends at 6 a.m. And I'm zipping along. There's no one on the road. Nobody. And I see these mini ponies. And I'm like, (laughs) 
and I and I see him out of the corner of my eye. Like the hell did I pass a flock of mini ponies? I turn around. There's a flock of mini ponies, um, and then I find out that they are his mini ponies. And I've seen Austin on, on some of your shows and stuff like that. So yeah. his mom actually came over. Um, I was riding one of the mini ponies. <laughs> and so um, she comes over and thanks us for wrangling these mini ponies and tells me that they're her sons yeah. and all of that stuff. So, yeah. And you were able to de-escalate that? Yeah. I thought she was going to get mad that I was riding the mini pony. But let me ask. When do you get a chance to ride a mini pony in never, never. at four a.m. on the side of the road? It's never. This has never happened. So the opportunity presented itself, and you took it. Yeah. So anyway, hey, off track again, <laughs> squirrel. That's like when I hit the button earlier about the sound, and it made some sort of sound noise. That was. Hey, I apologize for that. But uh, uh, quick shout out. I want to give a shout out to all those who continue to go out in the community, continue to deal with uh, the things that they deal with uh, to make our community better. So the medics, the first responders, obviously the cops, I'm biased. Um, I'm yeah. biased towards the police. Oh, yeah. Um, our medics, good ones up here. Uh, our military members, shout out to the all, all five branches of the armed right. forces. Oh, or right. sixth, maybe with the space force. Yeah, um, space force. I don't know if they're they're part of the air force, but anyway. But I heard that they play Gallagher really well. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> shout out to all those cats who are doing this job, and they're not putting themselves out there on a pedestal. So much love, much respect, and uh, we will see you next time. All right, guys, take care. <laughs>